Every summer, travelers pack up and head for destinations down the street, across the state, around the country, and the world. Whether it's a new city, the mountains, or the beach, it's likely they have a book stored away with them. From May through August, media outlets, booksellers, and publishers alike share reading lists like 10 books for moms who need a break this summer, best beach reads, and more. The concept of a beach read is nothing new. Much like the trip you're on, a beach read is normally designed to help the reader escape from reality through romance, mystery, literary fiction, and more. On today's episode of The Oxford Comment, we're going to challenge the status quo by looking at narrative nonfiction and its potential, not just as a beach read, but as a leisurely way to spend time reading. We asked around the Oxford University Press office to see what books are accompanying our employees on their travels this year. This summer, I'm definitely bringing Turtles All the Way Down by John Green. I'm a big fan of young adult fiction, and I am looking forward to reading something fun on the beach. This summer, I'm definitely reading We're Going to Need More Wine by Gabrielle Union. It's a collection of essays about her personal life, and I think it's going to be good and kind of relate to mine. I'm going to start reading the book Sweet Bitter by Stephanie Dandler. Uh, I'm going to be reading The Real Lolita, the kidnapping of Sally Horner, and the novel that scandalized the world. Uh, it's a nonfiction book about sort of the real life that inspired Lolita. I will be reading Vacation Land by John Hodgman, which is a, I guess it's a collection of like memoirs and stuff of him growing up in New England and visiting the dangerous beaches of Maine. When you peek around the beach this summer, you may be shocked to find book covers that lack the chiseled chest of a sailor or even an oiled up cowboy. Instead, you're more likely to find the familiar faces of political figures or the bylines of emerging public intellectuals as narrative nonfiction is on the rise. The industry changes and the rise in narrative nonfiction shows us that general readers are no longer looking to just escape their reality, but rather have a better understanding of it to help them make sense of the world around them. History, law, and political science nonfiction saw a 13% growth during the last fiscal year. The industry has been historically dominated by fiction sales, but what has nonfiction turning the tables? In an era of political upheaval, social movements, and the search for truth among the social media spam, consumers are turning to reliable sources for knowledge. We sat down with authors, booksellers, educators, and publishing experts to find out what societal and cultural shifts are causing the rise in narrative nonfiction. We sat down with Simon Winchester, nonfiction journalist and author of numerous books such as The Meaning of Everything, The Perfectionist, The Professor and the Madman, and more. Let's hear from Simon. I'm Simon Winchester. I've been writing all nonfiction books for better part of, I suppose, 30 years. And the most recent one, and I suppose the reason I'm here in the OUP offices, is about the Oxford English Dictionary. For our listeners who might be unfamiliar with narrative nonfiction, could you please explain what the genre entails? Yes, uh, narrative nonfiction is a sort of a new genre, I think invented, or relatively new anyway, taking a subject which seems relatively dry and amenable to a plain historical treatment and filling it full of characters, um, tr characters drawn from life. In other words, it's, this is non-fiction. There's nothing fictionalized about it. But reporting on their conversations and their personal habits and adventures and so forth and making the story into a narrative. In other words, giving it 
almost a novelistic feel. So you read it and are compelled by the, if I use the word excitement, there's not a great deal of excitement in Longitude or indeed in the making of the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the first book I wrote using this narrative nonfiction technique. But it's a technique now that I've completely, um, all of the books I do use, if I can call it a technique, by fleshing out the characters and I won't say putting words into their mouths, but if you can find letters expressing their sentiments or whatever, it humanizes them. So it's a way of, I think the word is probably correctly chosen, humanizing history and turning it into a narrative and rendering it somewhat different from the dry-as-dust histories which we sort of remember, from, at least I remember from my school days, which are not very compelling, making history exciting, if you like, and interesting and human, because after all, history involves human beings, and they tended in the old days to get rather left out. Off of that, your background obviously includes a great deal of nonfiction, but also journalism. Do you approach these subjects similarly or differently? Or have you ever found a correlation? I was a journalist, mainly a foreign correspondent. So I was in places like Delhi and Hong Kong and East Africa and in America. The thing that it teaches you is you've got to get it right, you've got to get it concise, and you've got to get it in on time. The technique, of course, is in terms of writing is, is very different. I mean, you seek for concision, you seek for, well, getting it right. I mean, absolute accuracy, of course, is important, but there's no, generally speaking, unless you're writing what's called a color piece for the paper. If you're writing news, then it's you know, just the facts, ma'am. Whereas a book you can put into context, whether it's historical or personal or description of landscape or, or history or whatever. And it can all be much longer and much fleshed out. And I find it much more satisfying. Although to get a story right and, and make it short, but to get all the elements into it is very, very difficult. And I appreciate what good journalism is all about. In a way, writing nonfiction is somewhat easier. We live in an internet age, constant communication and constant content creation. After a while, it becomes hard to pick what we should be reading or learning about. Do you have any advice for readers in order to sift through all of this information to find stories that we should be reading? I think, and I, I know this is going to sound like um, special pleading, but I think you should, and, and I'm glad to see this is possibly beginning to happen, read nonfiction. But what happens in nonfiction is that it can be every bit as exciting, every bit as bizarre things are going on, but they're true. And also, in some cases, they're not only true, but they're important. As we've mentioned, we've witnessed a rise in book sales over the past five years or so, and that is largely driven by narrative nonfiction. Why do you think this trend is happening? The rise in print sales, I mean, the, obviously from a writer's point of view, I'm so cheered by this because it wasn't you know, five years ago that everyone was predicting the book is dead and paper is over and trees were breathing sighs of relief all over the world. But it's clearly not happening. What is it, 320 new independent bookstores were opened in the United States last year? I mean, it's, something is happening. People are coming back to books, which is great because, I mean, uh, it's a cliche, I know, but a book is a perfect device for transmitting information. I'm thrilled that it's coming back, and the fact that it seems to be driven by nonfiction, I think is completely wonderful. And why? The truth is often more remarkable than fiction. And so I think readers are starting to find out that within the world of nonfiction, there are stories every bit as good and occasionally rather better than the stories they'll find from the great novelists of the day. Based on what we learned with Simon Winchester, it caused us to ask ourselves, who is writing narrative nonfiction? So we sat down with OUP author Dan Dresner, who is at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and writes regularly for the Washington Post. And Dan talked about who is writing narrative nonfiction and why. Can you briefly describe the key differences between public intellectuals and thought leaders? Public intellectuals are what Isaiah Berlin would have called foxes. 
which is to say they know a little bit about a lot of things. They are experts, but they are willing to opine on areas beyond their area of expertise because they're generally well-read. The key thing to realize about public intellectuals is what public intellectuals excel at is criticism. Public intellectuals can tell you everything that is wrong with everyone else's idea. And so as a result, they sort of act as the kind of, you know, checks on new ideas that are potentially introduced into the system. They don't necessarily have sort of bold or innovative ideas on their own, but they can tell you whether or not someone else's idea is worth listening to or not. Now, thought leaders would be like Isaiah Berlin's Hedgehogs, which is, um, to quote his parable, you know, the, the fox knows a little bit about many things and the hedgehog knows one big thing. So a thought leader is someone who has a big idea and they think that everything in the entire universe can be explained by that idea. So essentially, if public intellectuals are critics, thought leaders are evangelists. They will go and preach everywhere and say everything that you thought was wrong or not working out terribly well can be explained by my big idea. In essence, what I argue is that the marketplace of ideas to, to thrive and to be robust needs both of these kinds of thinkers. You simultaneously need thought leaders to constantly introduce new ideas into public debate, but you also need public intellectuals to stress test those ideas and to sort of weigh and consider when those ideas might actually have intellectual merit or when they're probably not that great of an idea. Why are we seeing this new shift towards thought leaders? When I talk about public intellectuals and thought leaders, you want a careful balance between these two. Um, if you have a world that's dominated by public intellectuals, then the barriers to entry in the marketplace of ideas are too high, which means that essentially the sort of world of ideas becomes ossified and stagnant. Gatekeepers are too powerful. We don't ever hear about any new ideas. And that's a problem because the world always changes and we're going to need new ideas. On the other hand, if you have a world that is dominated by thought leaders, uh, then the barriers to exit are too high. In other words, it becomes easy for a thought leader to inject a new idea into the marketplace. And the problem is, is that with a weakened state of public intellectuals, bad or stupid ideas don't die. They continue to persist and indeed might actually, God forbid, get implemented as policy. Now, what I talk about in the ideas industry is that there have been three major shifts over the last 50 years that have essentially stacked the deck in favor of thought leaders at the expense of public intellectuals. Um, the first is the erosion of trust uh, in, in expertise and in authority. And trend two, which is closely married to, uh, is the rise of political polarization. And this polarization, there's a, there's a number of different causes, some of which is that people might actually hold more ideologically uh, extreme positions than they used to. And then the final uh, and most important that's driving this is the rise of uh, economic inequality. This makes them very receptive to thought leaders who will tell them that everything that everyone says about a particular problem is wrong and they have a new radical solution that is correct. What they do not want to hear from are public intellectuals who will point out all the myriad structural factors that might you know, prevent a solution from being created or might prevent a radical solution from being created. And they certainly don't want to hear from public intellectuals who will tell founders that the reason they got to where they are is not necessarily you know, entirely because of their own skill and will, but perhaps maybe just maybe they were born on third base. And so as a result, all three of these trends favor you know, thought leaders at the expense of public intellectuals, which is not to say the public intellectuals are extinct. Again, it's just that the scale is being pressed down on one side more heavily in opposed to the other. Is there anything in your opinion that public intellectuals could do to communicate better in a polarized society? Um, that's a great question. I think there are a few things that public intellectuals can do. You know, one standard argument it's often made is that thought leaders are somehow better at exploiting new media. In my experience, that's not actually the case. Um, public intellectuals, you know, can be just as adept at things like social media or, you know, TED Talks or what have you. So I think that public intellectuals need to dissociate the means through which ideas are spread from the sort of content of people who might be giving TED Talks or what have you. So one thing is to embrace the, the new forms of media. The second thing, I think, is to essentially make an argument to more traditional philanthropic foundations that patience is a virtue. Some argument needs to be made to these kinds of foundations. And you are starting to see this kind of turn in some of them um, to recognizing that it is worth funding public intellectuals, not necessarily because they are going to get you know, more Twitter mentions or more Google you know, citations, 
but rather because it gives them the cushion to think seriously about ideas um, and gives them the intellectual freedom to actually, you know, take on thought leaders that are probably not necessarily correct. And Dan, do you have any advice for the public and for those consuming all of this information, how they should be wading through it and deciding which stories to read and to listen to? Well, I think the key thing for the public to realize is that there's a difference between a good story and a more general trend that is actually true. You know, you're interested in, in the rise of, of why people are reading nonfiction. And I think one of the reasons is, is that a lot of nonfiction now, and I think this includes the, you know, the opening of multiple chapters I wrote in the ideas industry, is that there are stories or narratives that you can tell that will hook in the reader that are as good as fiction. The key thing to tell a reader is that it's one thing to give them the story. The story is the hook, and you want it to be compelling, and you, you know, the, we shouldn't be afraid of, of telling good stories. But in some ways, what you want to ask the reader, if the reader is thinking critically, is think, okay, so this is a good story. Is this the only story that makes this argument, or is there more evidence? And I think what separates a, a, a readable book from a truly good book is a truly good book doesn't just have the stories. A good book also then has the larger data and evidence and research to back up that the story is not the only example of this, that the story is simply an exemplar. In this section, we're talking to Patricia Farah, author of A Lab of One's Own, Science and Suffrage in the First World War, and Lee Fott, author of Women in the World of Frederick Douglass, who shed light on an important aspect of narrative nonfiction, which is exposing untold stories. Let's hear more from Patricia and Lee. My name is Patricia Farrer, and I'm based at the University of Cambridge in Great Britain, and I'm president of the British Society for the History of Science. I'm Lee Baud. I'm an associate professor at Lemoyne College in Syracuse, where I'm also the director of the Gender and Women's Studies program, which is a minor program in Gender and Women's Studies. Share with us what the inspiration was behind your book, A Lab of One's Own. My first inspiration, it was absolutely coincidental because I'm usually an 18th century historian and I was in an archive in one of the women's colleges in Cambridge and the archivist showed me this absolutely beautiful handmade book with an embroidered linen cover and lovely black and red lettering inside. And Just after the First World War, two women at Newnham College had compiled a list of about 600 women associated with the college who'd been very active during the war and it gave these women's names and it also gave what it was that they did. And on the first few pages, there were women who were carrying out ballistics calculations, there were women who were developing explosives, who were developing medicines, who were testing vitamins, who'd been doctors, and a lot of them had military awards, both from our own country and from foreign countries such as Serbia and France. And when I looked at these pages, I just couldn't believe that I had never heard of any of these women who were obviously doing very exciting work during the First World War. So I decided to find out more about them. And the more that I discovered, the more I just wanted to tell their stories, which no one has ever told before. There's lots of, lots of stories about new scientific inventions during the First World War, but those books deal entirely with men. There's lots of books about all the wonderful work that women were doing in Britain. They were uh, running the buses, they were down the coal mines, they were nurses, they were doing marvelous things, but there, there weren't any books about this very, very small group of highly educated professional scientists, engineers, and doctors who'd sort of fallen through a gap between those other two bodies of literature. So these were the women that I concentrated on, and I rapidly started finding out more and more about them. Lee, what was the inspiration behind your book, Women in the World of Frederick Douglass? It kind of was inspired back when I was working um, editing the Douglass papers. I worked on the first published volume of Frederick Douglass's correspondence. I was noticing how many women were doing a lot of the key work in just making sure that his career happened and that his work was possible. They were his people. They were the ones who, not just like the stories about his wife who made sure he looked good when he got on stage, but they made sure that his newspaper survived. The more I kept digging, they made sure there's all of this support work that went on behind the scenes and not always quite behind the scenes 
to make sure that the abolitionist movement itself happened. And so I wanted to know more about them, what motivated them, who they were, where they came from. And there was so little about them. I mean, there were bits and pieces, especially for his life. There were bits and pieces here and there, but it was mostly kind of like, and they were there. But let's talk about the men. So I kept looking, and I kept looking, and I kept looking. The cliche is, you know, write the book you want to read, and that's kind of what happened. In your own words, what's the most important part of telling these untold stories? When you look at a history book, it's very easy to think of it as being objective facts about what happened in the past. But of course, there's millions and millions of facts. So every single history book there is, is in some sense an interpretation. It reflects the point of view of the author, what he or she feels is important. Female historians and male historians have been retrieving the lives of of women who were 50% of the population. They played a very, very important part in whatever was happening in the past. So I think it's absolutely essential for historians to come to the past with their own interests and to uncover stories that are going to reveal different aspects of the past, aspects that were crucial but that we didn't necessarily know were there. These untold stories help enrich this understanding because when you consider the history of studying history, there were only a certain kind of people for the longest time writing history, mostly men, mostly elite, mostly white. But when you start getting different kind of people writing history and more points of view and more experiences looking at the past, then it becomes a deeper, richer, more interesting and exciting story. History is a humanity, which means we're studying humans. Humans are pretty complex as a species, and we need all of that complexity to tell their stories if we want to understand why humans do what they do. Do you have any advice for any storytellers, filmmakers, or journalists who have stories to tell but have not felt confident enough to share them yet? So I have specific people in mind when I write. So uh, what I'm trying to do is make my writing but very definite, not very abstract. I try to avoid the passive tense. I, I try to think why things happened. And if I say, oh, well, attitudes change, then I think, well, why did they change and whose attitudes changed? And perhaps people had different opinions. And I think if you're writing about women, that's particularly important because women are 50% of the population. They don't necessarily agree with the male 50% of the population, but just as importantly, they don't necessarily agree with each other. And that's particularly true in the period that I'm writing about when different groups of women held very, very different attitudes towards the vote, towards working, towards how they should be paid, towards whether they should fight. There, were, there was a whole host of different attitudes. So I think it's, it's very important to look at those individuals and see how the collective is formed. Things don't change by themselves things need people to change them and so I think you have to retrieve those individual voices and see how cumulatively they made transformation possible. What's your opinion on the recent rise of narrative nonfiction? Well it's not surprising actually because I mean it's not surprising in this particular moment with all the flinging of fake news and internet memes and not being able to trust the information you get wanting to know something that is factual. People can relate to the characters and stories. People tend to put information together in their heads and stories. They can order your ideas and they can be read on multiple levels, as anyone in the literature department will tell you. In some ways, I think the narrative part is the reason you can go into, say, Barnes and Noble, and most of the history books are written by journalists. But I think really good historians, they can do as well as journalists and telling the story and then take it a step further by being able to get into that really deep, complex area. I I like to think and hope for humanity that people really like that. They really like to have their intelligence engaged. I think because the growth is relatively recent, I think part of it is that we are living in a post-truth fake news world. All this information is circulating around us. We're absolutely bombarded uh, with stuff 
but we have very little way of knowing whether it's true or whether it is not. If you read a history book or an economics book or a book about nature that is deliberately telling a story but telling a story based on known fact, then you know where you are. You you know you, you've got something solid and real. So I think part of it is a search for certainty in a very uncertain world. And so one idea about going back to the past, for me anyway, it's very important to look at the past and to try to understand how it is that we've got to the present. And the whole point of doing that is to try to improve the future. Exposing untold stories, a really important aspect of narrative nonfiction. But an additional aspect is exposing unheard voices. Jeffrey Stewart, professor of Black Studies at the University of California and author of The New Negro, The Life of Alan Locke, and Mary Schmidt Campbell, who is the president of Spelman College and former dean of Tisch School of the Arts. She is the author of An American Odyssey, the life and work of Romare Bearden. They sat down with us to help us understand the importance of ensuring we're hearing these unheard voices in narrative nonfiction. Jeffrey, could you describe what the process was like of taking a historical figure like Alan Locke and bringing him to life in The New Negro? Well, I started some time ago working on this project, and uh, at first I sort of approached it as an academic uh, biography. I spent a lot of time in the archives at Howard University where his uh, papers are, and they're voluminous. Uh, archives. He kept all kinds of things, scraps and papers, notebooks, uh, note cards, um, almost like he really was, you know, very anxious to have his life story told. But uh, about, uh, you know, through the research, I began to realize that I needed to utilize some uh, narrative nonfiction or fictional techniques. I took some, uh, I took a course in novel writing, and uh, I tried to think about his life moving through a series of scenes, almost a kind of cinematic uh, approach. This is, of course, against my normal tendency, which is I'm an intellectual historian, so I was very much interested in the ideas. Alan Locke was a philosopher. Uh, his ideas were that uh, essentially through a kind of internal revolution, African-Americans could create a new Negro that uh, was not beholden to uh, paternalism and that could chart its own independent path through the arts. Uh, so I was really trying to work out those ideas, but I realized I could not really uh, get people to, you know, get into that sort of story unless I dramatized it. Mary, what was the inspiration and your process behind writing your book, An American Odyssey? So I, when I was a graduate student, I met Romery Bearden uh, when I was given an assignment to research some aspect of American art history that was not recorded in most mainstream art history texts. And so I decided I was going to write about um, an African-American artist, and my thesis advisor said, well, if you're going to write about African-American artists, Here's somebody you must consider. And she opened a catalog of his retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art, which at that time I think opened sometime in the 1970s. And I looked at this work and this work bowled me over. And so I went to New York and the show had traveled all over the country and its it, it final stop was the Studio Museum in Harlem. And I went to see the show and I had never seen work like that before. So my husband and I left that show and went all over the city of New York looking for other examples of his work. We went to the Guggenheim, the Whitney, the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum. We couldn't find a single example of his work. And so finally, in desperation, I went to what was then a public payphone where they had the directory hanging from a chain and I looked him up and so I called him. And meeting Rome Reed Bearden was the start 
of my becoming much more deeply involved with the history of African American art and understanding how long African American artists had been practicing in this country, how significant their contribution was, but most importantly, how almost at that time completely undocumented uh, that contribution was. And I decided that that was going to be my area of emphasis as an art historian. Why should readers be exposed to more diverse books and untold stories? So in the case of, of Bearden, as I was telling the story of his life, what I began to realize is that his, his life intersected with a larger story in American culture. And that larger story in American culture was that as black Americans were defining and shaping their sense of citizenship, that effort was always being challenged. And we know about that. We know about that from a legislative point of view. But I think we're less aware of that history from a visual culture point of perspective. And as I was telling the story of Romery Bearden, what I realized is that at every stage of his career, the African-American community in, in the United States was being challenged by aspects of our visual culture. I think it is important, unknown figures, to be visualized and written about. I mean, after all, we kind of went through a period after the civil rights movement and the black power movement, the sort of black studies movement, where a number of the major figures got serious treatment. People like Martin Luther King, uh, W.B. Du Bois, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes. But looking at other figures that actually made their lives and their creativity possible, I think that's one of the things we, we often forget is that intellectual life is something that's supported. It's enabled by a lot of other people who maybe don't write the big book, but who are there to sort of, uh, as Locke would say, midwife that work into being. And so I really think that that's a very important process for historians and also for journalists. There are so many stories being told right now. As an educator, how do you decide which stories to tell in the classroom? One of the things that I would be sure to tell my students is to go out and go back to the primary sources. Find the correspondence and look at the uh, periodicals, the press that was written during that era. An article from 1881 in the Star Zion, the AME publication, can tell you a lot about popular culture and what people were thinking about. Go back to the archives, look at the correspondence, look at the publications, uh, do the primary research. Because m what I found is that much of what was written as secondary and tertiary sources was false. They had wrong dates, wrong information, things in the wrong sequence. And when you went back and looked at the marriage certificates or the death certificates or the census data, what you found was the primary information that's going to feed uh, your sense of what really happened. Sometimes the reality is that the story finds us, not we finding the story. I mean, if you're a historian and you're teaching, you know, American history, you're confronted with these stories, but somehow at times these stories speak to you. There's something about them. There's something about the particularity of their struggle that moves you. And I think then your job as a, as a historian or writer is to try to move your audience, try to communicate that spark, that interest to them. And that's really our, our job. And I think that it usually takes a lot of work because often we we sort of get so you know enmeshed in all of the details of the life that we get distracted from the larger takeaway so i think you know, there are many stories particularly in this case i felt like that Locke's story was somewhat undervalued because he was a gay black man and that uh, at some point in telling his life story doing his biography 
one has to confront that, what that meant for his life, what were the obstacles he faced because of that, and also what advantages in some ways, what second sight into circumstances of the black experience did he gain from being a, a, a queer intellectual. So that was one of the things that I thought uh, was a particular thing that those who had been neglected, perhaps deliberately in the past, because their stories are perhaps challenging to us, that that's one reason why we turn to some of those understudied people and try to do them justice. These stories have always been there. They've just been ignored. So if you're interested in great stories as part of being a literary or historical or aware person, uh, it seems to me it would make sense to put up a barrier to the type of story you're going to hear and read. You'd want to know everything. You know, we're, we're a little bit away from an ideal that was very important to Locke. It was the cosmopolitan ideal. Although he criticized superficial cosmopolitanism, you know, this kind of superficial where you just travel to see sites and and return home the same person. He really believed that travel and being open to the other's story was part of making you a more educated, more cultured person. And I think we've lost a little bit of that. We're so much concerned with our story. But the, the larger point is our story is enlarged. It's enlivened by the inclusion and knowledge of other people's stories. And I think that cosmopolitanism is one of the lessons that Locke has for us today. We also spoke to Phil Nell, who is a professor of English at Kansas State University and author of Was the Cat in the Hat Black? The Hidden Racism of Children's Literature and the Need for Diverse Books. Phil walked us through his process as an educator for ensuring he is instilling the need for diversity amongst literature in future teachers. Phil, can you share how you decide what stories to teach as an educator? So one thing that I try to do is be diverse in terms of the kind of stories that they are, um, in terms of just genre, literary genre. Um, and that's a way to foreground a kind of difference, a stylistic difference, whether it's uh, a novel in the form of a screenplay and in verse, um, realist novel versus you know, speculative fiction versus fantasy, et cetera, right? And then the other way that I think about diversity is the way that we've been talking about the different kinds of identities in the world. And for my current iteration of Literature for Adolescents, which is actually an online class, the class tilts towards diverse books, but then also making this a space for, for the voices that are, that are excluded. Uh, you know, being an adolescent is hard anyway, right? It's even harder if you're a member of a minoritized community. It's even harder if you're a member of a group that is treated as less human. Uh, those stories are more important, period. How do our own experiences play a role in the current state of diversity in the publishing industry? Anytime emotion is involved in making a judgment, that's a place where racial bias can enter. It's more that a person in the publishing industry finds that the story just doesn't quite speak to them. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. It's even quite well written, but ah, is there a market for this? And the reason they're asking those questions is that their experience differs from the experience of the person writing that narrative. You know, there are many people with whom that narrative might resonate. Um, and the person in the publishing industry, whether it's an agent or, or an editor or whomever it is, um, you know, may not be conscious of the way in which her or his racialized experience informs the kind of decisions that, uh, that he or she is making. And the way to fix that is not simply through good intentions, because there are many well-intentioned people in the publishing industry, but it's through structural change. You know, it's through actually making the commitment to change the workforce at an institutional level. It's making the commitment to diversity at an institutional level. It's acknowledging that the population of the United States is moving towards majority non-white, and to be prepared for that, the publishing industry needs to be publishing the kinds of books that 
people in the present and the future are going to want to read. Um, you know, it, it, the publishing industry needs to better represent the readers whom it ostensibly serves. People are more likely to seek out stories that they support and identify with. Do you think this is true? Yeah, people are more likely perhaps to seek out stories that they already support, but I think there's a a much wider area of overlap between stories and personalities. For instance, the story might not announce its ideological agenda explicitly. I'm interested if you have any thoughts on what readers can do to help check themselves during their browsing process and help them expose themselves to more diverse stories. What steps or small actions can consumers take to remember their own unconscious biases? Consumers need to make a conscious effort to pick up the books, uh, read the reviews of the books that represent people who aren't their demographic. Um, And that's actually easier to do than you may think. Um, You know, you can read book reviews and find good books that don't necessarily represent quote-unquote you, but, you know, are getting some awards or are getting some acclaim or getting some buzz, um, and then can go pick those books up and read them. I certainly make a conscious effort to do that myself uh, as an educator, um, and especially as someone who teaches future educators. I'm a professor of English, and I teach children's literature and young adult literature, and so my students, some of them, are going on to be teachers. And so, for me, it's really important that the books that I teach them are diverse because that's going to affect the kind of choices that they make. We should be more open to untold narratives because we have the most to learn from the stories that are not being told. You're not really going to read the greatest stories being written unless you open yourself up to the full variety of stories that are out there. Um, You're missing out if you're only reading the kinds of books that, you know, seem to you to be familiar or, or the kind of thing that you like. You're missing out. You're, you're depriving yourself of greatness. And don't do that. <laughs> um, I, think, I think maybe that's a way maybe to, to incentivize that reflection when people are choosing a book. Phil's right in that we're missing out if we're only reading familiar books or books with stories that are familiar to us in our own experiences, which is why it's important that we step outside of those comfort zones because we'll realize fairly quickly that there's a lot more we identify with if we can give ourselves the chance. We called up Angela Maria Spring, who's the owner of Duende District Bookstore, which is a bookstore for and by people of color where all are welcome. Independent stores are on the rise, as we know, based on the numbers the American Bookseller Association has put out, supported by NPD and BookScan. Independent booksellers also offer an outlet for their community to find answers to the questions they may be asking themselves today. So Angela shed more light on bookstores' impact in their community, as well as diversity and the importance of curation uh, that booksellers can provide. Angela, how do bookstores assist consumers in finding new, important, and usually untold stories? So being a bookseller is a very joyous thing. You know, we have just a particular interest in the arts. And what we do is really a very specialized and important thing. Just just like librarians are very important to their communities, and they kind of do a similar function, uh, what we do is we basically take the just morass of things that are being published and we curate them for our customers in our community base. We are able to basically sort through all of these because I mean thousands of books come out every year. The public and also our customers trust us to basically find the books that we love, number one, and that we think they would love. And that is a huge deal. And it also means that booksellers are 
gatekeepers in a sense as well, which is uh, why I really wanted to focus on my communities and communities of color so that we could you know, sort of think about like how, how are we gatekeeping these books and um, how are we picking these books out and sort of just be more conscious about it, but also uh, instead of us being sort of in the back of somebody's mind, being at the forefront. How do booksellers exist in this current cultural sphere? With the fight for facts and education and inclusivity, do booksellers feel pressured to remain biased and unbiased? This is a really interesting question, and this is a question that is literally being debated amongst booksellers today, and and it's an important question. For me as a person of color, especially as a person from the Latinx immigrant community, my mother um, you know, it's from Central America. I'm literally political just by existing. There, I don't, you know, to be able to choose whether you're going to engage or not in that as a bookstore owner to me is a privilege that many of us from these communities don't have. You know, bookstores are businesses. They are small businesses, and owners have every right to, you know, choose to engage or not engage. I generally, like, on the whole, I feel bookstores are actually, they're really seriously trying to think about how can we actually actively participate, you know, in the ways that we know how to, uh, you know, whether it's curating book lists and displays or having specific events that, uh, you know, talk to these sort of things. We were supposed to sort of go down in the age of technology, and we've actually, what we've done is focus on being community spaces and, uh, you know, really trying to hone in on who our customers are and who our neighborhoods and communities are. And so... I think booksellers take that into account. You mentioned books going down with the rise of technology, and as we now know, our stats show that that's not really the case. Have bookstores and booksellers noticed that consumers are really coming back to reading to search for answers as opposed to other outlets such as the internet or broadcast television? I I do. You know, it's really interesting. You know, there is the internet factor, and I think people do buy on the internet, absolutely. But I think when they want to go to a physical space, they want it to be special, and they want it to be something that they feel at home in. And, you know, we talk a lot about the third place, the place where you go to work, you, you go home, and then you have a third place that you like to go to a lot. You know, that's a place that you really like. And it could be a cafe, it could be something like that. But the bookstore is something I think that we as an industry has we strive to make it that third place. And and in my mind, and I say this a lot to my colleagues, is I don't really see us as selling books per se. We sell an experience. You know, you wanna walk in and have that experience and you wanna figure out what that experience is. And I think a good store owner is somebody who really knows how to curate that experience, including what kinds of books they're championing and putting into people's hands and, you know, putting on their shelves, that is a part of that experience, absolutely. So that, that I think, is really where we have strengthened and become something that I don't think people really expected us to be. So I'm really excited to see that the narrative is no longer bookstores are struggling to survive, but we're really starting to thrive, and that is really important. So, Angela, we asked a bunch of people what's in their bag for their summer beach read. Would you like to share what yours is? You know what I would do to the beach? This is fantastic. Miriam Yerdva's Mean. It's such a fantastic sort of, it's this experimentally memoir-y. I, I love that people are thinking about summer beach reads in a way that it's like much more, uh, it's a deeper kind of thing because in a way, people I think are thinking more deeply about reading, which is very much, you know, what it doesn't matter if you're going to go to the beach or not, you know, you, you want to have something that's substantive and fascinating. We've unpacked a lot in today's episode of the Oxford Comet, and one that you may be a little shocked by. We took you on a journey that we actually experienced ourselves. We set out to do a podcast on the new narrative nonfiction and really giving narrative nonfiction a voice as a chance, um, as something you can bring along with you to the beach, that it doesn't have to be heavy necessarily, but you can get the same satisfaction from it as you could from a science fiction or fantasy novel. But the more we went and the more we spoke to our 
authors, educators, booksellers, and professionals was a much deeper story about narrative nonfiction. We unveiled its importance in helping us make sense of the world around us, which something we've touched upon in other episodes of the Oxford Comet, though maybe not quite so blatantly. It's showed us that diversity is incredibly important, not just the responsibility of those who are publishing books, but the responsibility of those who are writing and uncovering untold stories and unheard voices. And lastly, it is really incredibly vital and critical that we as readers give stories a chance that we may be unfamiliar with while setting aside our own unconscious biases. So this is something that we didn't necessarily set out to do, but one that came along naturally because we should be asking these questions. We hope that you've learned more about new narrative nonfiction and the benefit it has. But we also hope that as you pack up for your own travels, you may reconsider tossing in your old supermarket romance for something that digs a little deeper. As you distract yourself from the heat, you may just find out the science behind rising temperatures. Or as you take a break from your newsfeed, you might pick up a story of an unheard voice that makes you walk away with a deeper understanding for today's racial issues. We'd like to thank our contributors, Simon Winchester, Daniel Dresner, Patricia Farah, Lee Fought, Jeffrey Stewart, Mary Schmidt Campbell, Philip Nell, and Angela Maria Spring for sharing their thoughts on the rising trend of narrative nonfiction. I'd also like to thank the cast and crew of the Oxford Comet, who put in a lot of time and hard work into this episode, and remind you to follow Oxford Academic on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. Coming up on the next episode of The Oxford Comment, we'll be shedding light on humanitarian efforts around the world in conjunction with the United Nations World Humanitarian Day. I'm Erin Katie Meehan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>